Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Uh, welcome everybody, I think we'll make a start. Um, I'm Nick Pearce, I'm the Director of the Institute for Policy Research here at the University of Bath. Um, and I'm very pleased today to welcome Jeff Crocker. Um, Jeff um, is uh, somebody who's made his career in uh, technology consulting, in the philosophy of technology, uh, and in more recent years um, developed an interest in universal basic income and in the financing of universal basic income and how it relates to some wider debates that we have had really, you know, in, in, a, in a big way politically since the financial crisis and the aftermath about austerity, about what caused the crisis, um, its relationship to things like declining wage share, rising inequality, household debt, and so on. Uh, and so the purpose of today's seminar is, to, is Jeff's going to present his arguments and ideas on these sorts of questions. We'll open up for, or for a debate. Um, we at uh, IPR have uh, a program of research into universal basic income um, uh, that's starting on a number of these themes, uh, but we also have uh, other research we're undertaking on the, if you like, the political economy of basic income proposals, how basic income relates to the existing welfare states, what sorts of groups in society might support or otherwise a basic income, um, the politics of uh, basic income proposals, which kinds of parties support basic income, and why. Uh, and these are, I think, um, important discussions, not least in the context of recent experiments we've had um, results on in Finland, um, proposals in India by the Congress Party to roll out a basic income. There's a lot of uh, political interest in the idea uh, around the world. So in terms of the substance, if you like, of the basic income, its relationship to some of these bigger uh, macroeconomic and other debates, uh, but also in terms of the sort of politics and political economy of basic income, uh, it's a very interesting set of issues to be researching and contributing uh, research into public policy debates on. So um, without further ado, I will ask Jeff to give his presentation, and then, as I said, we'll have a, an opportunity for debate and discussion. You'll have the debate with Yeah, I will. Well, many thanks, uh, Nick, and many thanks to all of you to coming along. And um, this is, as the first slide says here, a very much work in progress. These are the developments of some embryonic ideas. And so for me, the uh, hugely interesting thing of this uh, session is to receive your feedback. So please uh, feel free to be as critical um, as you like, because uh, for me, the interest is to test out um, this strand of thinking. <clears throat> so I've entitled the presentation, Basic Income and Sovereign Money, uh, because I'm making the claim that the combination of those two um, acts as a corrective to economic crisis and acts as a corrective to austerity policy. So hence, a fairly large claim. But if it can be sustained as a claim, then of course, it becomes a fairly significant argument in favor of basic income and sovereign money. So we see the current economic system, I think we would all agree, um, exhibits some significant dysfunctionality. Some people would say the economic system is broke. It seems to me that's a rather extreme because we've all managed to get here, we've had some food, we're clothed and so on. Um, but <clears throat> it's so not broke, but there are significant areas of dysfunctionality, fairly uh, well-known ones. First of all, of course, economic crisis of 12 years ago, um, actual or likely to repeat, pervasive debt, both at household level and at government level, continuous application of austerity policy with pretty drastic social consequences of extensive poverty, um, low-paid jobs, increasing inequality, Piketty and so on, ecological damage, which is a great concern, and therefore uh, this does need, I think we would all agree, some element of radical rethink and some re-engineering of the economic system. Um, 
The explanation so far, with <clears throat> a very popular explanation for the crisis, has been what I call the bad guy theory, i.e. there were bad banks who created excessive debt and, of course, piles of pyramids of derivatives, um, and there were bad governments who failed to regulate that process. And therefore, on, on this theory, the corrective is to get debt down, to get debt down by tighter bank regulation, to get debt down by replacing it with quantitative easing, which I will have a look at in the presentation, and to apply austerity policy so that the government deficit is reduced by having lower welfare expenditures. Um, the, the but to that, and bracket since it's not working, um, are, the, are some of the following questions. Uh, first of all, is this a credible hypothesis? Is it a credible hypothesis that simultaneously in all countries all banks went crazy and all governments failed to be responsible? Um, the way I put it, of course, is suggesting that it's not actually a very credible hypothesis. And if we take one step backwards um, in regressive questioning, saying, OK, if debt's responsible for the crisis, what's responsible for the debt? What caused the debt explosion? Um, how much of the US prime debt uh, was actually for housing, i.e. for the purchase and the building, the construction of housing, and how much of it was using the housing as equity in order to borrow to fund regular consumption? And the question whether the crisis is structural rather than behavioural. So the thesis I will advance is that the crisis actually is structural rather than behavioural. Um, this is a little attempt to show a time graph of uh, economic uh, policy and event. So in the obviously years down the left-hand column, the second column, what events occurred and what the outcomes were, matched in the third column by the policy set. I'll try to show in the slides to come up that over the period 1948 and the post-war period, continuously earned income becomes insufficient to purchase uh, GDP or indeed to fund consumer expenditure. Um, and unearned income increases to compensate, including the unearned income of consumer credit and household loans. The policies during that period, of course, well known to many of us, Keynesian fiscal demand management, in the first period displaced um, after the 70s stagflation by monetarism type one, the attempt to control the um, supply of money in the economy. <clears throat> and when that failed, and I suggest that that might be largely because of um, money uh, transmuting into credit card money, i.e. there's a flexibility there which can't be easily controlled as to how people may or may not max out their credit cards. So it became difficult to, to control the quantity of money. Therefore, the monetarism reverted to trying to do it by the price of money, i.e. the interest rate, to control inflation. This led to a position that by 2004, household loans had peaked at 165 billion, that is new household loans, into the economy in that year, which of course um, led to default, that's a UK figure, and in 2007 crisis. The response to the crisis down the right-hand column there, first of all, tighter bank regulation, um, proposed by people like Adair Turner and so on. And bank loans have indeed shown increasing uh, severe conditionality. And it's not so easy for the consumer to get a household mortgage as it was. And uh, certainly in business loans, where, which I am familiar with that process, the conditionalities have tightened immensely. So in an area of the economy in which I work, 25 years ago, I was able to borrow on far easier conditionalities than are imposed today. <coughs> and uh, today, new entrants to the sector I'm working with cannot get um, bank loan funding um, purely because of the increase in conditionality and a bit dark covenants and all the rest of it.
At the same time, austerity has, relatively speaking, seen welfare benefit incomes fall. And may not be absolutely the case, but it's certainly relatively the case. And quantitative easing, which has been very significant, um, £435 billion in the UK and €2.4 trillion Euros in, the, uh, in the Eurozone, has had the effect of asset prices increasing, and we'll look, look at the, the effect of that in a moment. So by 2017, we're in a position where household loans have increased again to 77 billion, um, inequality is increasing, poverty is increasing, and the commentators ask themselves, are we facing the next crisis and when might that be? So um, I'm trying to look now at the cause of debt. And the case I'm trying to make, and again, please do critique this case, the case I'm trying to make is that uh, household debt is increased because of deficient labour income versus consumer expenditure. Now, this is a graph for the UK economy, which runs for a very long period, from 1948 to 2016. I am grateful to the ONS team who have helped me refine this data, so I have reasonable confidence that the data is a correct reflection of reality. And it shows consumer expenditure in the lighter colour, excuse me, I'm colourblind, but the lighter colour is consumer expenditure, and the darker colour, uh, labour income. And you can see um, uh, an inexorable uh, change there in the structure of the economy, i.e. 1948 to 1995, labour income, defined as earnings plus self-employed um, income, was sufficient to meet consumer expenditure requirements. Crossover point in 1995, since when uh, labour income has been insufficient to meet uh, consumer expenditure. The argument, therefore, is that that, has been, uh, that gap has partly been made up by increased household debt, but the unearned income is clearly more than that. Um, it is pensions, um, it is welfare benefits, it is dividends, but it is also uh, consumer credit. So the thesis that I propose is that due to technology, output growth um, uh, precedes wage growth that as productivity increases, there is an arithmetic inevitability that the wage component of the output must therefore reduce. Um, and that's the hypothesis that in high technology economies, the macroeconomy needs unearned income structurally. This is another attempt to look at a similar idea. But in this one, um, I map um, UK GDP against disposable income and household loans. And... Uh, you can see from that graph, um, looking carefully between the years 2001 to 2007, that disposable income flatlines against a more, more robust GDP growth, such that over that period, 2001 to 2007, disposable income grows by 16.1%, whilst GDP uh, grows by 24.8%. Um, this could, of course, be due to higher growth in investment, government spend, and net exports, the other components of GDP. But um, some of that gap is undoubtedly met by a 52.1% increase in total household loans. Um, this becomes unsustainable, therefore you get default, and therefore you get crisis, and therefore austerity is imposed. If, if that gap could be met by uh, basic income, you would clearly avoid the crisis because you would avoid default because you had reduced the household loan component of consumer income and you would avoid austerity and I'll come on to why I think that may, may be. So in this graph, I, this is a derivative of the previous graph, um, on the top line there I've mapped the difference, that's the difference between UK GDP and disposable consumer income versus household debt which is the bottom line. 
Now this is a, a casual and not very scientific observation at this point, but you can see that the curves follow the same profile. Um, <coughs> household loans match the movements in the GDP disposable income gap. Um, and therefore, the uh, claim would, is, my claim is, that uh, GDP minus disposable c consumer income is the cause of the increase in debt. As I said, household loans peaked at $165 billion in 2004, reduced to 4.6 in 2009, and are now back up again, actually $77 billion um, in 2017. So that's the claim um, I'm making to which I would uh, very much appreciate your response. So the cause of the crisis, therefore, uh, becomes underconsumption leading to debt. So I'm claiming that the crisis is structural rather than behavioural. I mean, it's all very good fun, of course, to blame the bankers and the governments, and uh, uh, there's a sort of a scapegoating process going on. Um, but whilst it may be fun, it, if it's not accurate, um, then we're not going to um, correct the situation rightly. And the remedial policies become ineffective and the crisis can repeat. Now, of course, there are similarities between the 1930s crisis, where Keynes was pointing out that uh, low wages reduce aggregate demand, and they are not, therefore, a solution to a crisis, as the neoclassicists claim by saying, you know, people price themselves back into work, but they're the cause of the crisis, because low wages feed through into low aggregate demand. And uh, according to Keynes as well, of course, low interest rates and increased money supply could also prove ineffective uh, due to his theory of liquidity preference, and money gets stuck in the process. And uh, the Marxist economy, J economist James Devine, his 94 work, does link this to uh, U US stagnant wages in the 1930s leading to increased household debt. So it has uh, similarities. And in 2007 crisis, writers like Robert Skidelsky and Eterna Martin Wolf pointing out that, that per pervasive debt is the cause of the crisis. Um, the question I think is, how much of household debt has been for consumption and has only used um, the, the, the housing market as a, as a guarantor to borrowing against uh, house values to fund consumption? So I'm suggesting that there's a structural wage and consumption cause and asking the question as to how much this is due to technology, how much of it is due to globalization um, using low-paid um, low wa wage labor overseas, and how much of it is due to reduction in worker power and trade unionization. This, uh, these graphs show the fact of continual deficit in the UK. Um, even at the simplest level, that does show that it's perfectly possible to run a, an economy for a long time um, at a deficit. Um, maybe it's an inevitability. This similarly shows G7 economies in deficit, over the period 2000 to 2012, similar picture. Um, whether one can interpret that correctly to say that there is an inevitability of deficit in the system, because however much successive chancellors of the exchequer in various countries try to iron it out of the system and promise balance in government revenues by a certain uh, date, they never, of course, succeed. Um, and this is the fact of ever-increasing debt. So the countries along the uh, x-axis may not be very easy to read, but um, the glorious case in the right hand uh, there of Japan with a debt of 234% of its GDP. Um, I would claim that it's a myth that such debt represents 
a burden to our grandchildren because um, how is an economy ever going to pay back 235% of its GDP? The reality is that there is a perpetual deficit in the system and that that can be used to fund the necessity of basic income as part of aggregate demand. So I try to build towards a new paradigm and the elements of the new paradigm are that um, household debt could be replaced with basic income. Now, I'm not saying that that's the whole answer, but I'm sort of suggesting little kind of steps forward um, in my own thinking process. So if we were, had been able to replace the 165 billion um, of household debt in 2004 with 165 billion of basic income, which had been funded by sovereign money, it seems to me clearly we would not have faced the 2007 crisis because um, you could default on your household loan, but you can't default on your basic income because you don't need to pay it back. Um, and similarly now, if the 77 billion in the economy in new household loans last in 2017 uh, were replaced by basic income, you would see the indebtedness by definition come down. And the same with government debt. If we could replace government deficit or debt with sovereign money, then we face much less of a constraint that's driving the austerity policy. Uh, the question is, of course, whether these are just uh, wishful thinking, um, an Alice in Wonderland proposal, or whether they can be um, engineered into a sound economy. <coughs> the argument from technology, which I'll look quickly at, um, many of you will be familiar with the arguments in the second machine age by Brinjelson and McAfee, that automation uh, will inevitably lead to unemployment to social exclusion, to low economic demand, to recession, unsustainable consumer credit crisis and austerity policy. So um, they point the finger at automation as a significant cause of the dysfunctionality that we have um, in first slide of my presentation. Um, so on the one hand, nobody can doubt the dysfunctionalities and equally nobody can doubt um, the, that there is a significant impact of technology in our production matrix, and most of my work, uh, professional work, as Nick was saying, has been out in the industrial strategy market seeing exactly that phenomenon, um, and it is um, quite extraordinary. Basic income would break this vicious circle, but the question is, how could one fund a basic income which is substantial rather than marginal? So many of my colleagues working in the basic income field are aware of the affordability problem and therefore propose a, re a relatively modest marginal level of basic income which can be funded by various other tax cut, uh, tax increases, other, other welfare benefit cuts and so on. Um, and personally I support their, their initiatives. So uh, um, Howard Reed and Stuart Lansley, for example, working with Campus and Joseph Roundtree Foundation, have a new report out a couple of weeks ago, which is proposing such a scheme. It costs about 300 billion, and they show how it can be funded um, and balanced in the present economy. And I would very much welcome that, um, because I think it's a first good step, because there's nothing wrong about it. You know, nobody can object to rebalancing um, the economy in that way, it seems to me. Although I am trying to push for a more radical uh, view so I take a simple thought experiment, and in this thought experiment, um, you plug a machine into the earth and it produces total GDP. So it produces all the goods and services that we want, and there's no labour, there are th therefore no wages in the system. 
Um, how would you distribute the output? Well, in this case, you distribute the output by the government issuing vouchers to everyone. So it's 2.4 trillion GDP in the UK, uh, 2.4 trillion vouchers. And the question is how you would uh, uh, determine your distribution. But these will be distributed to the population who hand them in for their goods and services. These are then destroyed at the end of the year. And a new set are printed on the 1st of January next year. This is a thought experiment, OK? Um, so therefore, I can enjoy some license with it. But, but, but from this thought experiment, it, would be, it is clear that 100% of GDP becomes basic income, and the vouchers that are given out, and also 100% of GDP becomes sovereign money, because these vouchers are just issued, destroyed when you hand in for your goods and services, and reissued the next year. Um, but, so don't worry, I'm not quite stuck with that, because the nuanced argument that I um, advance from that is that in high technology economies, some element of unearned income is essential to macroeconomic aggregate demand. And I think the data I showed earlier proves that that is the case em empirically. And that some element of financial deficit um, or um, sovereign money emission is also inevit inevitable in advanced technology economies. And that's the thesis that um, Nick is leading the project uh, with Ida to, to address this hypothesis at IPR at the moment. So this clearly does need um, a more heterodox economics view um, as a theory of money. And the elements of that such a heterodox view would be that consumption, investment, consumer income, and UBI, they're all rendered affordable by, out by output GDP. They're not rendered affordable or unaffordable, which is more important, by public sector financial balances, which is the current um, mantra, you know, um, George Osborne, the economy can't afford this, that, and the other, so therefore we should make people unemployed. I mean, um, you know, if you've got the people, you can produce the output. Um, so that it's output GDP which defines affordability. It seems a very simple point, but it's a very simple point that's got lost um, in the analysis of the financial sector and the financialization of the economy. Secondly, money has no inherent value, but it derives its value from output GDP. Um, again, seems obvious, but um, you know, money is, is credited with far too much, in my view, in the contemporary political debate. Um, it has no inherent value. It only has value that we ascribe to it by allowing it to refer to output GDP. Um, and output GDP, of course, once accumulated over a historical period, becomes assets. And output GDP also reflects uh, resources because they will become future output GDP. So I'm using it as a sort of rather umbrella term. It also therefore means that a sovereign state can create money solely against the criterion of output GDP, not gold reserves, which is a nonsense we managed to get out of, uh, but not so recently, actually. Um, or, and this is the important claim I, I'm making, or as the sale of government bonds. Um, so money emission in the economy should relate to output GDP constraints, not gold reserves, and not the sale of government bonds. And therefore, it doesn't need to create debt. Um, so the nature of money and the definition of affordability in this picture become his financial orthodoxy, where money has inherent value, either from gold reserves historically or from the sale of government bonds today. It's real and can't be created or destroyed. Government budgets must balance, and affordability is defined by government financial reserves. Um, now, whether that's being unfair to the current uh, political economic statements that uh, we get in the press every day, and that's the, the, the dominant paradigm, if you like, in our thinking, I don't know, but it does seem to me to characterize um, 
generalized thinking compared to a heterodox theory of money, where, as I say, it has no inherent value but derives its value from output GDP, the sovereign state can issue without debt, um, and the financial deficit or sovereign money is inevitable and manageable in high technology economies. These are radical claims, which is why I'm inviting you to um, critique them as strongly as you feel you would wish to. So affordability is defined by real resources and productive potential. This is an attempt to graph that. It's a simple graphical picture of what I've just said. And the manifest theory of money at the top there, um, money um, deriving its value from gold or government bonds, then therefore allowing us to afford investment, production, wages, welfare and consumption taxed back. Or a radical neo-Keynesian heterodox MMT, whatever you want to call it, theory of money, where it's the investment and the output GDP which generate um, and ascribe value to money, which then goes through into wages, welfare, consumption and the tax uh, um, circle. So monetary theory of money predefines money value and applies the affordability test. A neo-Keynesian theory, or whatever I'm presenting now wants to be called, of sovereign money ascribes money value from output GDP, which becomes the proper test of affordability. So the basic income hypothesis that I'm um, advancing is, this is repeating rather, forgive me, but in high technology economies, unearned income is, is an essential component of macroeconomic demand, and basic income is the best form of such an unearned income, and I will say why in a future slide, and financial deficit is necessary um, and inevitable, or um, free sovereign money. So what I'm claiming, I suppose, is that the, the observation of the phenomenon of deficit is like a surrogate for what could be and should be sovereign money. Uh, so because we're not allowing sovereign money in our economic thinking, we're, we're facing uh, the struggle with the deficit. It's a surrogate for what should be there in terms of sovereign money. And it's not as though there are any downsides to the basic income argument. Here are four other great reasons for basic income, uh, and there may be others, of course there are, but these are categories. I think Malcolm uh, Torrey in one of his books has 101 um, reasons for basic income. I'd suggested the 102nd to him, but he didn't want to change the book. Um, but uh, you know, human flourishing, clearly, you know, it does give people, us as humans, the ability to rethink our work-life paradigms. Um, and the idea that we all want full employment all of the time is questionable. Um, what do we mean by full employment? Do we mean the seven-day week? Do we mean wartime hours? Do we mean uh, 37 hours? Do we mean 25 hours? And so on and so forth. Um, if the technology is on the one hand um, preventing us uh, getting to full employment, that sounds like bad news. But if the technology, on the other hand, is enabling us to think differently about our lifestyle and to adopt a more creative approach to what we want to do with our time, then maybe that's an advantage that we should... Uh, take advantage of. Um, I'm of an age where a lot of my friends have retired and uh, frankly not one of them regrets their retirement experience. They're, they're happy bunnies, you know, they've, okay, they're, they're well enough funded but they're, they're, they've gone into art, uh, one of them has become a, a, a recognized, recognized artist, others are 
teaching kids to sail, local sailing club, and so on and so forth. So, you know, suddenly they have a sort of sovereignty um, over their own lives, which they didn't have before. And as I was saying to Nick over lunchtime, I started my working life at Rolls-Royce Aero Engine Factory in Patchway in the north of Bristol at age 17. I did a pre-university year there. And uh, I tell you, at four o'clock in the afternoon, everybody was crowded up by the gates. The whistle went, the gates open, whew! <laughs> And they were all queued up from 10 to 4. So it isn't actually as though people are thinking, you know, I'm finding my fulfilment working in uh, uh, number four shop at Rolls-Royce. I mean, I'm sure, because I did work there, so I mean, there are very fulfilling aspects to creating an aero engine and seeing the plane with it fly over, over your factory on its maiden flight. Of course, that's very fulfilling. But the idea that um, that's what people want all the time, and this allows us to, re to reconsider. Um, ecological responsibility. Because um, if we maintain the, the mid-20th um, century social argument, which I certainly ascribed to, that full employment and high wages are the, the only solution uh, to people's income requirements, then, of course, we feed more people into jobs. And if that's at high levels of productivity, the output increase is going to be pretty fundamental. Pretty, pretty substantial, so it has ecological implications. So the claim would be that uh, basic income has an ecological gain. Social justice, uh, very important. Guy Standing's uh, main advocate for that in his uh, books on the precariat. Um, and administrative welfare efficiency. So Malcolm's main argument is that if you're going to have any welfare benefit system at all, um, then basic income is the best one because it's not intrusive, there's no means testing, um, it's very low cost because you don't have loads of um, officials administering it, um, its uh, uptake is 100%, uh, whereas the uptake of other benefits is low, and so on. So that's uh, four other great reasons for basic income. Any reasons against it? Well, frequently the argument is made that this is a work disincentive. So if you pay people money without doing anything, why will they want to work? Well, first of all, as I've said, maybe we don't all want to work just quite as much as, um, as we thought we did. Um, but um, secondly, it's the current welfare systems that disincentivize work. Because if you're on benefits at the moment in the UK and you take a job, you lose pound for pound on your benefits. Therefore, the marginal rate of tax is something in the 90% uh, region. So it's the current system that's a disincentive to work, not a basic income system where if you took a job, you wouldn't lose your basic income. And the other main objection is to affordability. But as I've said, it's output GDP, not government funds, which determine and the affordability of consumption, therefore, of income. Other great reasons for sovereign money. A very good book by Joseph Huber on, called exactly that, Sovereign Money. Um, sovereign money returns seigniorage to the state rather than it being allowed with commercial banks, i.e. the difference between the money in circulation and the actual physical cost of producing the money. The seigniorage returns to the state, gives state control back uh, of the money supply, and reduces reliance on the instrument of uh, interest rate, which is such a blunt instrument to try to manage an economy, having so many other side effects in an economy where people have mortgages, where it's an open economy and the interest rate affects the exchange rate and so on and so forth. You know, there are so many uh, complex effects of interest rates that uh, using it as a policy tool is um, very limited and very dangerous. This is an attempt, which again, um, I only drew up this week, but to try to show how many creation and flow currently work. I won't go through it in detail, but you can see there, government and central bank, pension insurance companies, banks, commercial banks, consumers, and firms. So the, um, the argument of, uh, of um, sovereign 
of the uh, modern monetary theory people is that money is created when banks make loans either to firms or to consumers. This is the money creation process in the system. And it's not created by um, people making deposits to the banks who then multiply the deposit in loans made out. This is a contentious claim, but it's an interesting one, and certainly one I know the Bank of England support. So let's assume it's right. Um, the, the, so you can see where the taxes, benefits, and things are flowing through the system there. Um, the argument that uh, QE, therefore, made is in the dashed line. Um, so QE was a central bank, initially, the central bank buying up bonds largely from pension and insurance companies who are huge holders of net funds because the pounds going into the pension insurance payments are much greater than the pension payments and, uh, and insurance payments going out. So there's a huge um, financial holding here, which is what the central bank tapped on by selling um, government bonds, um, putting QE money, 435 billion, here. Uh, their hope was, and their declared aim was, that asset prices would increase, that this would reduce the yield on those asset prices, that this would reduce yields throughout the economy and persuade consumers and firms to borrow more and generate economic activity. Well, you know, first of all, I will look at in a moment, how effective is that claim? Secondly, it is by definition a pretty circuitous claim. So um, the argument for sovereign money would be um, so-called QE for the people as an instruction from government central bank um, and that sovereign money is just credited into people's bank accounts without anybody incurring any debt. And uh, my claim would be why not? You know, what is wrong with that proposal? I remember Simon Jenkins writing in The Guardian at the time and he said give us all a grand, <laughs> I, you know, that we would all be given a thousand quid. Um, it's important in such a proposal that people do actually spend it. Uh, so therefore you could think of giving people uh, a value credit card with uh, a certain amount on, 10,000 quid, say at the beginning of the year, and it has to be spent through the year, and if it's not, it automatically wipes out. That's one possible way of doing it. There are technologies around to do that. So that's how um, a sovereign money system might work. And uh, this is where I certainly would like any other contribution to the understanding of this, uh, and I'm trying at the moment to find somebody in the Bank of England who would agree to discuss it to critique it. So, evaluating the anti-crisis policies, bank regulation certainly increased um, conditionality, but new household debt is still crept back up to the 77 billion figure. Quantitative easing, well, the Bank of England's own assessment um, acknowledges that uh, bank lending was constrained more than enabled because of these increases in conditionality. Uh, so. Uh, secondly, the Bank of England think that GDP might have increased by between 1.5% and 2%, but they themselves admit that they've got no way of uh, saying whether that's due to QE or not. And at the best, it's not a very big claim. But certainly, that asset prices have substantially increased. That was the target, that was the result, and the increase in equality is obvious um, because of the way assets are held and owned in the economy. Austerity. Um, Porters and Reed, in a recent article, uh, show that how welfare cuts have hit low-income families with children most, and they reckon that a 1.5 million increase in child poverty has occurred. And as many of you will have read, uh, Philip Alston's recent UN report uh, shows the UK economy with 14 million people in poverty, 
and 1.5 million people destitute. Now, if those claims are anything like right, it's not a great uh, claim for the policies which have been applied um, in response to the crisis. So, here is a little sketch of how my proposal would work. Basic income and sovereign money policy as a corrective to economic crisis, because they take the household loan out of the equation, and as a corrective to austerity policy, because they take the government deficit constraint out of the equation. And you may think, well, this is just uh, blissful thinking. So here is a slide of a blissful um, economic policy, where output GDP drives the emission of debt-free sovereign money. The debt-free sovereign money funds at uh, the bottom uh, a basic income for consumers, which is therefore household debt-free, and at the top funds government expenditure on welfare benefits, which therefore are um, deficit-constraint-free, up to the level of output GDP. Um, and therefore, in the bottom line, you get no crisis. On the top line, you get no austerity. And in between, you get uh, reductions of poverty and inequality, and you get uh, an increase in both ecological and human outcomes. So as they say, what's not to like? But now over to you to tell me what I might have got wrong.